Good morning, Peninsula. How are we today? Good? We got it nice and cool in here for you. You're welcome. <laughs> the same temperature every week, but you know. <laughs> we are, have launched a spring sermon series. We're calling it Joyful as we walk through the, the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. We need some joy in our lives. Amen? So you've made it kind of to the beginning of the series. You've only missed one if this is your first time. So it's, it's, you, congratulations on that. When Paul opened with these words in Philippians 1 verse 3, he writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What did he mean? What were those first days in Philippi like? Well, that's what we did last Sunday morning. He came over from, from Asia. There's a map here. It's coming. See what happens. Are they big enough yet? No? Better? Are they great? I can't see in the back. Okay, see what happens when you when you prepare early enough that you can hand it over to the comm team to fix the map. So, Paul comes from Asia at, at Troas. He sees that vision, that dream, come over to Macedonia and help us. And he crosses um, somewhere there. And the first big city he comes to is Philippi, which is a Roman colony, which to us is, okay, whatever. To them, that, that's a big deal. You get Roman citizenship. The laws of Rome apply in Philippi, not the county of Philippi. They don't get any say, all right? And so he comes there to this big city. He meets a businesswoman, and then a slave girl, and then a jailer. And out of those three relationships, a church is born. And it is a church that Paul loves very deeply. The heart of the letter begins in verse 3 of chapter 1, and Paul's thanks God for this church. But I think in this text, we're going to look at the first 11 verses. In, in this text, I think we learn something about why Paul loved this church so much. Why did he care about them so much? And by application then, why should we care about the church so much? Why should we care about people in other churches? I think I discovered two reasons why Paul so deeply cares for them and how we can so deeply care for one another. The first is this, we care because we're partners. Paul says, I care about you because you're partners with me. And my first observation is that Paul doesn't care because he spent a lot of time with them. It's not like he had spent years and years and years with them in Philippi, so he really got to know them. He was there long enough to go to the Bible study by the river get in trouble for casting out a demon, spending a night in jail, and then out of town. I don't know how long that took. It wasn't that long. Acts 20 records two later visits. One, he, he retraces his step from Asia uh, across, and then when he goes back again, he visits them on the return trip his way, on his way to Jerusalem. When he finally gets to Jerusalem on that trip, he gets put in jail, Sent to Caesarea Maritima, yeah, Caesarea Maritima, I'll be there on Thursday, when, what day are we there? Wednesday we're there, 
Are you jealous yet? You should be. We'll be there. We'll, don't, it, we get to see the prison, sort of, where he was that we, they think he was. That's kind of a new thing, so don't, spoiler alert. Anyway. I don't know where I was. Yeah, we're partners. Some of you just wish I'd end and be done, right? No. Um, he goes to Jerusalem, he gets arrested, he spends two years in Caesarea, then he gets transported to Rome, and he's a couple of years in Rome in prison, from which he writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Now, my point is that he didn't spend a whole lot of time with these Philippian believers. It, you could probably count it in months, if not weeks. So something else is going on here, why he cares about them so deeply. He says that they're partners in the gospel. Verse 4, he says, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Partnership. It is a very important word in the book of Philippians. It's a word you, you are familiar, word, familiar with. You know the word koinonia or fellowship. It, it can be translated participation or sharing or partnership because fellowship is sharing in something. And so he's sharing something with these believers. It is participating in something that is divine, something that is eternal, something greater than we could ever be or do on our own. It's being caught up in something that, that is a partnership which God sustains and creates. And as it begins, there's this hint of the central theme of this letter. They're in partnership with each other. They had shared in the ministry. We'll discover they had sent him money. We'll discover they sent him Epaphroditus to encourage him in prison. They participated with Paul in the gospel mission. And he's grateful, not just for the money that he gets sent, but for that relationship that he has with them. They were on the same team. And yet... That's a big deal because what's, what the team that they're on is so much deeper and more significant than any other team you could be on. Paul expands that concept when he writes in verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. See, those events back in Acts 16 uh, of, of, of Lydia and the slave girl and the jailer, they come together to launch this church. Those events, he says, are not orchestrated by Paul. They were orchestrated by God. He who began a good work, that's God. And so he's God has planted this church, not Paul. And even though Paul had to leave Philippi rather quickly, he's convinced that the Lord will take the ministry that was begun and complete it, continue it, till when? Till Jesus returns, to the end of the age. The ministry of which they had become a part is a gospel partnership. And that partnership will not falter. What God is involved in 
you know, God isn't going to let that happen. Didn't Jesus himself say that he will build his church and the gates of Hades will not stand against it? This isn't just the church in Philippi. This is a big thing. And what they experienced as the Apostle Paul and his team shared with them the gospel, quickly discipled them in their new faith, was all part of the work of the Great Commission. This is a big deal that's going on. And that work of the Great Commission will not end until the coming of the end of the age. Of course, things are going to come along which might hinder the gospel work, persecution, seduction by the pleasure of this world, whatever. Stuff comes to trip us up. But nothing but the second coming of Jesus Christ will end the work of God that he's doing. And that's an amazing encouragement for us to persevere in, in this ministry partnership, especially for this church at Philippi. He's telling them that this thing which they share together is not just some pat, um, fancy pass. <laughs> Passing fancy. <laughs> I know, right? Sometimes it glitches these days. <laughs> it's like, what am I saying? It's, it's not a trend. It wasn't just some popular thing. Some emperor can't end it. It's bigger than that. Because they are part of a task that God will continue and he will perfect all the way to the second coming of Christ. It's a worthy task. Future generations of believers will be called by God to carry it on until the second coming of Christ. We're one of those generations. On that great day, the work will finally be completed and the bride of Christ will be ready for the wedding supper of the Lamb, wearing its fine linen, bright and clean. And Jesus himself will return and bring this good work to completion on that day. And on that day, you will see people from every tongue, tribe, language, and people, and they will worship him. You see, God began that work. God's going to keep it going until Jesus returns. They're part of something big. This partnership is really big. We are part of something big. We are part of something really big. Now, some say that the good, new, that the good work that God began in them and will bring to completion all the way to the day of Christ is their salvation. That's what you've heard most of the time. God's not going to give you up. It's a support of, of, of never being able to lose your salvation, which is true, I think. But I don't think that's the point Paul's making here. Because if that were his point, I think he would have continued on in verse 7 to say things like he has said other places. Things like, well, it's right for me to have this attitude about you all because the salvation that you have based, that you have is based on the perfect work of Christ when he died on the cross, and what he has accomplished now in you, no man or angel, nothing can undo. It's, it's perfect and eternal. Aren't you glad for that? But that's not the reason he uses to justify his assurance of the work of God being done among them or in them. I think this verse is much better read as if it's coming from a visionary missionary. He's convincing his readers of the importance 
of the gospel ministry. These are not the words of a counselor wanting to reassure his readers that they can't lose their salvation. That's just not his point here. He's telling them that they are a chapter in the grand narrative of the work of God in the world through the gospel. And so are we. So take courage, Peninsula. God began a work, and he, we are now involved in that work that began at the day of Pentecost with the founding of the church. And we are part of the fabric of what's going on. And that work will continue until Jesus Christ himself returns. That's an amazing message. It's an encouraging message. It's a wonderful message. We're part of the story God is telling. We are part of what God is doing that he will someday complete. And Paul cares about them because they share this together. They're working in the kingdom alongside of him. But it also comes with some challenges if we think about it. Do we really see ourselves as partnering with each other? Do we, serve, do we see ourselves serving even besides those who maybe they don't show much evidence of grace? Are we partners? Or are people merely stepladders for us to get ahead? Do we spend time with people who are quite different from ourselves? But do we share it because of that partnership? Do we forgive easily when our partners offend us? Do we refuse to hold a grudge against them? Do we stop running with complaints to inchy ears? To anybody who's willing to hear any tidbit of resentment against someone they hate? I mean, what barriers do we put up with our partners, between our partners in the gospel? There are places in the world where the church is small, where it's an under fire minority. In those places, there are no superstar believers. And when I see them and think about them, I'm, I'm looking really at, at what the gospel needs to do in the South Bay. Because if those churches want to evangelize, they have to do the work themselves. In other words, the whole church is a partnership in the gospel. It isn't just a bunch of observers looking at a platform. Paul and the church at Philippi, they're not sitting on a pedestal. They were still involved in partnership in the gospel since that first ladies Bible study down by the river. Paul and the church are working together. They hadn't picked fights with one another. They hadn't left their first love. They hadn't become lukewarm. And Paul always prayed with joy for them because they shared the gospel ministry from that first day till the day he's writing them, thinking about them from the city of Rome. And they partnered together for something bigger than they could even have imagined. And so do we. There's some amazing opportunities to partner together in the days and the months ahead. Vacation Bible School in June is coming up. Not just something we do. We want to tell this community we love children. We're going to send students off to camp 
We're going to have a music camp for kids. We're going to, to Bombo again. This is a little advertisement. We're having a Bombo information meeting, 1215 downstairs. If you're thinking about going or if you're guilty, I mean, if you really sense the moving of the spirit in your life, we'd love to answer all your questions, 1215 downstairs. So, I mean, we, we need each other to partner together in these things. Maybe you just like to hold babies for Jesus. Great. Our kids' ministry is expanding. We, we're a partner in that. We're not going to grow unless that grows. So will we partner together for the gospel? Paul cares for them, I think, because they truly did share in this ministry. But there's a second reason in this text, I think, that Paul cares for them. And, and a second reason we should adopt so that we care more for each other and for the world it's that we care because we invest in prayer. Paul cared for them because he invested in prayer for them. And he demonstrates his care by praying for them. And as he prays for them, I really think that relationship between them gets stronger and stronger. It gets deepened. So let me ask you, how do you pray? How is the prayer life going? We're not gonna guilt today. But how do you pray for people beyond the most intimate circle in your life? When, what do you do when, when, when faced with a, with a list of friends and you gotta pray for them all? Our usual, our usual response is what? Well, Lord, um, I don't know, bless Sally. Oh, Lord, oh, bless Bill. And you get down there, oh, just bless, bless the missionary nature. Oh, just bless them all. Someone said, if you take the word bless out of our prayer vocabularies, we might not pray very long. And while I believe it is perfectly appropriate to ask God to bless people, don't get me wrong, I also think you can move a little bit beyond that. And when we do, I think it will dramatically increase the effectiveness of our prayers, and I think it builds caring and partnerships. Maybe we use Paul's prayer as a, as a blueprint for how we pray for each other. Because if we understand the meaning of his words, I think we can pray ab about anyone, about anything. So how did he pray for the church in Philippi? How do we pray for those who we are partners with in the gospel? Well, first, we can ask for three things. He begins his prayer with three requests for the Philippian believers. Take these to heart, you know? They seem to me they might be better than please bless whoever. Chapter 1, verse 9. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best. Three requests. Number one, abounding love. He says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. Get yourself a peninsula mug and stick it in the sink and just let the water drip. It's, it's the overflowing of that. Maybe it's coffee and you need to just overflow the coffee. That's the picture Paul has in mind. Love filling our hearts, filling those Philippian believers until it just spills out of them. No matter how much love we have, I mean, we can always grow. We can always let it spill more. And Paul prays that their love would increase in depth and in boundary. Now, let me make an observation. He's not praying that they might love 
him more. He's not praying that they might love one another more. He's not even praying that they would love Jesus more and more and more. That's not what he says. He's not praying that they go deeper and deeper into the heart of God. He prays for what? He prays for an abounding love. He's praying concerning the objects of their love, not praying about the objects of their love and affection. He's praying about their character, that you might be in your inner being a, an abounding, loving person. I'm praying that you might be more loving and that more love will flow out of you that you might be characterized by love. He recognizes the presence of love. He's just praying, not that they might begin to love, but it might overflow, abounding. Because we'll often find ourselves surrounded by irritable, cantankerous people. But love has to be the glue that holds us together, makes us partners. It's love which enables us to overlook each other's faults and acknowledge that we ourselves are pretty far from perfect. He says, abounding love, pray for that. I'm praying for that in your lives. Second, growing knowledge. He says, abounding love in knowledge and depth of insight. I'm praying for you that your knowledge would just grow, your knowledge of God. And this knowledge means, means deep, intimate, personal knowledge that we have by experience. People say love is blind, but no, actually it's not. Love has a very clear vision. And Paul is asking that their love express itself in this intimate knowledge of who God is. While love is supreme, it's never enough. It's got to be guided by knowledge. That's the burden of his prayer. So where do you find that knowledge? Well, you find it in his word. As you read the scriptures and let the Holy Spirit take that into your heart, and as we study, God reveals to us the things of God, 1 Corinthians 2. So you bury your heart in the Bible and you open that heart and you'll begin to change as you grow in this knowledge. Essentially, he's saying, Philippians, abound in love and learn to think biblically about everything, which leads directly to the third request. He says that you might have increasing discernment so that you may be able to discern what is best. It's a wonderful phrase that we might discern what is best. The message puts it this way. You need to use your head and test your feelings so that your love is sincere and intelligent, not sentimental gush. It's not what he's talking about. Knox translates it that you may learn to prize what is of value. New English Bible says that you might have the gift of true discrimination. The New Living Testament says... I want you to understand what really matters. And they're really all coming and saying the same thing. Paul prays for the Philippians that they might have such love and such knowledge that they would continually make wise choices. Don't be satisfied with the status quo. Don't be satisfied with spiritual mediocrity. But push on to true spiritual excellence. Get the gift of God of, of true spiritual discrimination. Now, discrimination in our day mostly has a, a negative tone. But in the spiritual realm, we desperately need to be able to discriminate between good and bad, between good and better, and between better and best. 
We've got to make wise choices under pressure. Parents of young kids understand that. You're constantly saying, now, you didn't make a good choice in that situation, did you? How can you make a wise choice? Because we need to teach our children to make wise and good choices. So God's people, under, under discrimination, under discernment, under pressure, we need to make wise choices. There's two points, two parts to those choices. First, you've got to know what's right. It's crucial because we, we live in a world where most people have, can't even imagine what's right and wrong. We've eliminated those things. Everything appears to them as some shade of gray. But you've got to know what's right. And second, you've got to have the courage to choose that which is right. Because true discernment gives you the vision to see what's right, and then it gives you the courage to choose it, to walk in it. Three things we can pray for as our partnership in ministry. But there's also three answers as you go through the passage that we should seek for those with whom we're partners. Love, knowledge, and discernment. But what answers should we look for? Verse 10 says, and 11, and, and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What's he looking for as you're praying for those three things? What are, you, what are the answers? First, a blameless life, that we may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Pure comes, comes from a word that means judgment, sunlight. First century stores weren't very well lit. You couldn't really see the product, the quality of the, of the, of the, um, of the fabric or the pottery. You had to kind of take it out into the sunlight. So expose it to the light so you can see what, what the quality really is. Because the sunlight reveals the truth. And to be pure means you live in such a way that the truth about what you're doing in the darkness, you have nothing to hide. It means people don't have to wonder what you're doing because they know you're pure. The second word is this word blameless from the, the, the family of words from which we get the word in English, scandal. It used to refer to the bait in the trap that would catch an unsuspecting animal. It came to mean a lifestyle that caused others to fall into sin. A blameless person is free from moral scandal. You don't stumble into sin. You don't cause others to stumble into sin because of your behavior. A blameless life, pure, blameless. Second result is a fruitful life. Verse 11, the first, the first part of verse 11. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. The Bible often describes fruit trees. You know, they can be good fruit and bad fruit. They can be describe either kind of right life, the righteous or the wicked. Jesus says you'll know a false prophet by the fruit that they bear. And here Paul is saying we should be praying for the fruit of visible Christian character. We ought to be able to, to display who Jesus is, and people ought to be able to see that in this world. Are we living in such a way that we're attractive, that people like, oh, you're a Christian, I can see that and I want that. As we are deeply rooted in him, we'll gather strength from him and his power will flow through us and, and, and come out as the fruit of righteousness. He's the root and his power produces that fruit. 
And he prays that these partners in ministry might produce the fruit of righteousness. Third result we should look for is a vocabulary lesson. A theodoxic life. He says in verse, the last part of verse 11, to the glory and praise of God. Now, do not look theodoxic up in the dictionary because it's a made-up word. I saw it this week and I thought, oh, that kind of is what it says though, you know? Theo means God, doxic means glory like the doxology. A theodoxic life is one that brings glory or praise to God by my definition. And such a person actually enhances the reputation of God in the world. Do they think about good things when they see you and meet you? Do they think about God? Does your life serve as a good advertisement for him? I learned after my wife, after my wife, after my daughter graduated from college, she went to Biola, Christian school, four years, actually five. Because that, never mind. So I found out after she graduated that she didn't tell anyone ever what her father did for a living. I'm like, are you kidding me? What's with that all about? What's that all about? I was crushed. Not really. But I guess pastor's kids did not have the greatest of reputations at a Christian school. Wow. That's not good, folks. If a, if a preacher's kid's life is not a good advertisement for their pastor dad, what does that say? It's sad. But we can all live life in such a way that doesn't enhance the reputation of God in the world. How does your life advertise the God you love? Do we make decisions at church to the glory and praise of God? See, it's very important to me that we be a place of grace. We have received grace, so we need to be a place of grace. It's very important that we need to be a place where we can creatively invest in the next generation because we are partnered with God on this big mission. Life's not just about us. Do we partner together for the glory and praise of God? Now step back from this prayer for just a second. This is really an amazing prayer. In some ways it covers the whole range of what God wants to do in us and through us. It starts with abounding love that manifests itself <clears throat> in knowledge and discernment, which results in the ability to make wise choices under pressure. And what are the results of that? The visible fruit of a righteous life that comes from a living relationship with Jesus Christ so that God alone gets the glory. Which prayer is going to help you care more about a partner in ministry? Lord, bless them. Or, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best. Sometimes I think we stick with bless them because we're lazy. We're in a hurry. So we just ask God to bless the missionaries, for example. But if we are partners, if we are sharing 
in the grand work of what God is doing. And that work isn't going to end until Jesus returns. If we're part of that, how dare we get lazy? Pray this prayer for yourself. Pray this prayer for other people. Prayer's not a ritual, but it's a matter of the heart. And to pray for someone else is, is an act of hidden kindness that only God sees. And because God alone sees your heart, he'll hear your prayer. He's going to reward you in secret. Two applications, and I'll close. Number one, we are on mission with Jesus. This is our day to partner with him in the work of the gospel around the world. That's encouraging. It should give us hope. It's not just us here, folks. There's a, there's a big thing that God is doing. And, and we help to help him carry that on. We represent the king, the savior of the world. So stay faithful. Get excited. This is a wonderful opportunity. Be encouraged. And make sure we treat each other like we're on this same common, wonderful mission. And pray for others who share in partner with us in this amazing endeavor. And number two, Memorize Philippians 9, 1 through 11. That's a very practical application. And I suggest you do it this week before you forget. <laughs> You're struggling with prayer? Struggling with how to pray for people? Memorize this. Not for your sake, but for the sake of wherever our Philippi is today. We've, many of us have been to Bombo. Are we praying for those people this prayer? Pray it for Nepal or Kyrgyzstan or Indonesia or Mexico, wherever. Even if you don't want to, write it down on a three by five card and use it to pray for other people. I might be a good pastor if you'll pray that for me someday. <laughs> Assert my name if you want to. Maybe this can be a launching pad. Maybe your small group needs to start studying the prayers of, of Paul in, in his letters. That's full of them. Do a study. This is how he prayed for his churches. Could be revolutionary. Paul cared about these believers because he shared in the ministry together with them. They were partners. We're going to discover what that really means as we walk through the book of Philippians, especially chapter 4. He gets very practical. They were partners, so he cared for them, but I think he cared for them also because he prayed for them specifically. That had to deepen their relationship with each other. And as he prayed specifically for them, he cared about them more and more and more. So who are you praying for? What are you doing with this privilege to partner together in ministry that we might proclaim the goodness and the grace of our God. Because this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may, be, you may be able to discern what is best, that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, Help us to understand the bigness of what we're doing together. 
that what we do and this work of the gospel and this great commission, it's not going to end until the day of your return that you are at work. And because of that grand responsibility, let us pray for one another, for churches and believers around the world, that their love might abound more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. That the work of God would grow and the body of Christ might be to the praise of the glory of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.